0: You're listening to Redefining Energy. Your co-hosts from Berlin, Gerard Reid, and from London, Laurence Segelem.: Today on Redefining Energy, we're going to talk about biogas.
1: Yes, Gerard, because I really believe we're at an inflection point. But first of all, from our partner.
0: Akita Capital is a sustainable investment and asset development company headquartered in Hamburg, in Germany. Aquila Capital invests in real assets and clean energy and sustainable infrastructure on behalf of its clients.
1: Yes, Gerard, we discussed for quite a while if we would make an episode on biogas, biomethane, which looked a bit marginal. And then this year we've seen massive operation, massive players. BP acquiring Arkea in the US for 4 billion. We've seen next era. Growing their biogas portfolio in Europe, uh, Macquarie acquiring Bewa division in biogas. This is it. Things are happening. Listen, at the end of the day, we need molecules, and they're greener form of
0: molecules that when we're getting a present from Russia. <laughs> right. We have to do whatever we can to push biogas across Europe. Because we will be, also be clear. There's only one or two countries where we are really, really strong on biogas. And there's other countries that are just way behind. So it's a great opportunity to actually grow this in the next few years.
1: Yeah, I've seen a few stats and apparently we're only using 5 to 8% of the current potential we have. And this is, as you said, this is homegrown security of supply. And we used to import 150 BCM of gas from Russia. And the production of biogas is 15 BCM. So it's going to take time, but we can really lever on increasing the production of biogas to compensate what used to come from Russia.
0: If I look at where Ireland, where I come from, one quarter of emissions are actually methane emissions caused by cattle. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have to look and say, well, how do you do with it? Well, is there any way of capturing those emissions from cattle and using them? Absolutely, there is. yeah. Yeah, And we have to look at stuff like that. And I know that means... You might need to change the agricultural methods and stuff like that. But there is a huge opportunity, I think. Now, if I look at Germany or Denmark and compare it to UK, there are also multiples in terms of production that is coming out of Germany and Denmark compared to the UK. So there's opportunities
1: across the continent. And it's in our own hands. And it's in our own hands, yeah. For our listeners, sometimes you hear about biogas, sometimes you hear about biomethane, and there's a difference. So... Biogas basically is made from the anaerobic digestion of organic material such as agricultural waste, manure, crop residue, or food waste or wastewater. But that gas, the biogas, contains about 40 to 60% methane. So it's it's considered poor in methane content. And there's a mixture of other gas and CO2 associated. So that's the biogas. You can use it as such, but the progress everybody's trying to do now is to produce what we call biomethane, where you remove the CO2 and all those impurities, and then you reach a level above 95% that you can re-inject in the network, which of course is more expensive, but of much higher quality. So we need to discuss both biogas and biomethane. So I
0: agree. I would just say to you, number one is you can take that biogas and actually burn it at source in some form of a gas generator. Or you can also mix to a certain extent that type of biogas into the system as it is. I understand it's not as clean and it's not as efficient in terms of the burning process as methane, but little, every, every little bit helps at this point in time.
1: Yeah. That certainly makes more sense than injecting hydrogen in the network. <laughs> well, that we agree on. <laughs> right. So,
0: right, right, right. Jar, can you talk about our guest? Yeah, Chris Huhn. Great to have him on the show. Chris Hewn was uh, formerly State Secretary for Energy in the UK. And at present, he's the chair of what's called the Anaerobic Digestion and Bioresources Association in the UK among other things but he's listening he's been a real big proponent uh, and pusher of renewables in the UK for many many years and knows the space
1: well so I'm really really thrilled that he decided to come on the show and he's a bit of a hero for the whole energy transition industry because he's one of the founding father of the contract for difference in the wind sector the CFD Kudos to him, because the whole world is using CFD now as a way to price and finance renewables. Oh, no, no, without a doubt. Listen, anyone who's got a CFD,
0: you don't have the problems of windfall profits that you have with you know, owners of renewable assets in certain countries across Europe. Well done to him, Now, Exactly.
1: As I said, great to have him on the show as well. Fantastic. Okay, let's bring him on. Chris,
2: welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: No, it's great to have you, Chris. Maybe I could just kick off by just asking you, we're going to talk about biogas, and I'd love to just hear your view on the state of the industry today, and then at some point this, we can dig into the details of the future and the technology and stuff like that, but just give us an overview of what's going on in biogas.
2: The industry has suddenly woken up to the fact that there's a massive opportunity, there's a real buzz, simply because what's going on in gas is so important globally and geopolitically. And for the biogas industry, it's an absolutely key part in Europe of the response to what is happening in Ukraine. The EU Commission has recognized that. It's one of the key pillars of the EU Commission's response, along with energy saving and emergency LNG import facilities. There's a real sense uh, that the time has come for this as a technology. It's a very old technology. It's been going for years and years, But actually, you can now make good money in biogas. Therefore, there is a lot of new interest, like BP buying Arkea in the US. But also, there are a lot of big players who are building plants, very, very good, very efficient operators. And there are some not very efficient operators who are not using their assets to an optimized extent. Now, that's an overview. It's still a relatively small part of the energy space. Uh, but last year, we were up to about a third of the terawatt-hours output of the nuclear industry. You know, it's, it's non-negligible. And one of the issues that the industry has always faced is to get over to policymakers that you can actually have a big solution with distributed energy with relatively small players I always like to say that in a way, biogas is the sort of dunkirk of the energy transition because it's lots of little players, but it can add up to quite a big part of the solution.
1: Chris, you raise a lot of points in which I want to dig in a bit further, but probably let's go into the economics. Am I right to think that by and large the LCOE of biogas is around 15 to 20 dollars per mmbtu, and of course, when the price of the market was at 10 dollars per mmbtu, you were 50% above or 100% above, and hence looking for subsidies, and of course, when the price at $40 per MBTU, absolutely no problem. So is it just about economics or are there other factors which have been hindering the development of biogas? Because as you said it, whether it's crop residue, animal manure, landfills, they've been there for
2: ages. They're quite big returns to scale. So the bigger plants are able to produce at uh, much more lucrative levels than, than some of the smaller plants. And that's not even taking account of some of the operational issues. But you're basically absolutely right. Up until the European gas price increase, you could not build a biogas plant in Europe without having either a very clear way of getting a return from your climate change levy or from the carbon pricing and that was an essential part of it now we're in a world where the natural gas price is high enough to make good returns if you take the view that this is actually going to last a substantial time and most of the People who are looking at this area do seem to think that's going to be the case simply because of the way in which infrastructure is locked in and difficult to replace. So that is, I think, why you're seeing so many of the oil supermajors being really interested in it and why you've seen some big players who can be quite cautious. Normally, some of the Japanese trading houses looking at it. You're right that we're in a game changer for the industry precisely because of what has happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on the natural gas price in Europe.
0: Chris, can I just follow on from Laurent's question and just ask like, how do you finance this plant, which really high capex, quite a lot of O&M, you also then have to sign up at a farmer or sewage plant as well to make sure your offtake is in place. I would have thought what that means is you need to have an offtake on the other side. In other words, you need to have a buyer of that gas for 10 years, 15 years. So is the biogas going the direction of natural gas where really you can sign up these long-term offtake agreements because that allows then low-cost finance to come in, if that's the case?
2: Yes, there are brokerage firms operating in Europe. I know one in the Netherlands, for example, who will attempt to Marry up a company that needs green gas for the long term, and will provide a long term offtake. All the usual problems are scale, creditworthiness of the counterparties, all the usual problems that we're we're used to. In addition to that, in terms of financing, you're now looking at these guys who are clearly building merchant plants. I mean, Air building merchant plants from their own equity in the US, for example, at scaling. But then there are special circumstances depending on the state. So California is a more attractive territory than most parts of the state. I think it's a very good point, though, that you're making, because one of the things that I would really like to see in Europe is contracts for difference for biogas, precisely because it will get us over what I perceive to be a market gap. If you talk to the trading guys, if you talk to Vitol, for example, you can get pretty much off the peg forward sale of your output for seven years max. If you go to a bank, you're going to need absolute minimum 10, 12 years of reasonable assurance of price on the offtake in order to have a bankable proposition where you can actually borrow the money. So that tells me, That if we can have a contract for difference guaranteed by governments where there is a fixed strike price, then the developer can come, get the contract for difference, get the loan from the bank to actually go ahead with the development. In my view, with biogas and biomethane, we are going to expand. We are expanding. And do governments really want to help that or not? If they want to help it, then Contracts for Difference is a pretty easy way and a pretty attractive way in the short run for the government of actually doing that.
1: Gerard, ja, correct me if I'm wrong, but they are very favorable uh, feeding tariffs in Germany already. They're where, ja. They're where,
2: Germany is by far and away the most advanced jurisdiction for biogas anywhere in the world. It's had this technology for a long time. Many of these plants are small, rural, co-ops, farm plants precisely because the support schemes have been so generous. And there are about 10,000 plants in Germany compared with around 700, for example, in the UK. So it's definitely much more advanced because of the generosity of support. Elsewhere, there's been less support historically and more reluctance to go the German route of real generosity in making the industry work. And it's just not necessary anymore, precisely because of the very high gas price in Europe.
1: Chris, I understand what you're saying, but somehow, and everybody wants to do that in energy transition, is to say, oh, look at wind, look at solar, look at batteries, and of course our technology, the price is going to go down. The question I have for you is, is, is there a technological route that you can envision where we're going to see the technological cost going down the same way we saw? Is there a standardization? Because look, I want a wind farm, I call Vestas, I call G, I call Siemens, I know what I'm going to get. I want solar, I call Longi, GA, Jinko. I know what I'm going to get. Is there the equivalent in terms of standardization of prices and everything for the biogas industry?
2: There aren't the same dominant players that you've got in wind, for example, but the potential is there with one caveat, and the caveat is simply that this is not the same as wind or solar, where you basically have a very high proportion of your total cost base is upfront capex. This is one where you've got substantial ongoing opex and you've got a feedstock. So it's much more like the economic structure that you see with a a combined cycle gas turbine, electricity generating plant, But it is, of course, renewable and sustainable. And the technology side of it can get a lot better. And I think that you'll see the standardization coming in with some of the big players who are coming in and building now on the big side. My personal hope is that we will also see probably one of the big agricultural machinery players, somebody like John Deere, for example, seeing this on the smaller scale as a perfectly normal add-on to their existing range of farm equipment, where they're actually producing a standardized biodigester, which could be rolled out in smaller scale farming operations. So that would be the holy grail, but you're going to get consolidation and Standardization at the big end of the industry. And remember that you've got an enormous variation of scale from tiny little back lot household plants in villages in Africa, which are biodigesters, through to I think the biggest is now in Finland with a pretty enormous gasification facility. So you've got an enormous variation of scale. And it's a question of standardizing at the big end. That is happening, but also making sure that we're not missing the opportunities at the smaller end by providing much more standardized off the shelf kit for smaller scale farmers in particular.
0: Chris, I just want to look, you know, I've invested in the biogas space and have been for many years. And what I saw is the first few years disaster. So when Germany put in feed-in tariffs for biogas 15 years ago, just in complete mess, plants didn't work, etc. But if I look now 15 years and I can see this in the results of the company that I've invested or the plant that I've invested in, they're just getting better and better and better. In other words, the learning is much better than it was. And you do have players certainly in continental Europe like Schmack and Envy and whatever that have been around for a long, long while and providing these solutions. So Like, I'd look at that and say that there's a lot of learning that's taken place, which means that we're in a good position going forward, even without the John Deere's coming into the market.
2: Certainly, it is now possible for you to go, if you go to any of the trade shows, you can go to well-established producers of the kit and you can buy a complete system and they will give you a perfectly good guarantee on that which you can take to the bank. That's fine. And they're reasonable scale. I still think that you're going to get more consolidation with the degree of investment that appears to be coming into the industry. You're going to see more of this standardization. So I think, Laurent, your point is correct, that if we're really going to take advantage of the potential of all of the feedstocks, and the International Energy Agency, in its look at the sector a couple of years ago, was actually suggesting that it could be responsible for over a third, I think nearly 40%, of natural gas demand globally, if all the feedstocks were potentially used. So it could be absolutely massive part of the energy transition.
1: You refer to the most important difference between wind, solar and biogas, which is the feedstock. And of course, I imagine that You want a plant which is as big as possible for economy of scale, but that means that the amount of feedstock you need to get, and I would say 24-7, is big as well, which creates logistical problems. So can you talk a bit about the different type of feedstock? And if it's, I don't know, animal manure, crop residue, they're not going to travel hundreds of kilometers in order to get to a plant. How do you see that?
2: Right. The feedstocks are literally anything organic. So you can use pretty much any organic matter and feed it into an anaerobic digestion plant. The feedstocks which have been most used started historically with sewage plants. You know, this is wastewater plants where you're simply using the sewage sludge and you're extracting all of the methane. Next up is manures and slurries from the livestock industry. In Europe, for example, perhaps some of the most attractive potential places here will be in Ireland, where you've got a lot of potential to replace a lot of natural gas, but anywhere there's a big livestock industry. Third set, municipal solid waste, and particularly food waste. That depends very much on governments mandating that you're going to have separate food waste collections. And that's a big ask for most of the industries that the government should really step up and make sure that you're getting the food waste that households are leaving out because it's being collected and can then be used in AD. But there's a lot of food waste as well in the food processing manufacturing industry. And that is increasingly competitive. So some of the bigger plants that I know of are finding that their food manufacturers who are providing them with a load of food waste as a feedstock are getting increasingly demanding as they see the price of the offtake going up and it is feeding through. So what was often a very localized market is now becoming a much wider market I heard the other day, for example, of somebody who was shipping feedstock from Scotland to the South Midlands for a plant. That, you know, a few years ago that would have been completely unheard of. And I'm also hearing of operators who were previously receiving 15 pounds a ton for feedstock, now having to pay up to 30, 40, 50 pounds a ton to get the feedstock because of the way the market has expanded. So some of the benefit of the higher gas price that is feeding through into operators is definitely going out to the feedstock suppliers as well. That gives you uh, an idea that the economics can change, but the feedstock certainly, there are enormous still potential for feedstocks, some of which have to be mandated by governments. If they are serious about using the opportunities that are there in the biogas industry, they need to think through that side of capturing the feedstock in an economic way as well.
0: Chris, one thing that I'd like to ask you about is you mentioned Ireland, and obviously as an Irishman looking in from abroad, I look and I say 20% of carbon emissions come from cattle. And it's sort of a no-brainer that Ireland should move towards biodigesters and, you know, even sort of take some of that grass and plant maize and use that maize to feed the, the cattle and also use the residue and biogas. Why is that not happening, number one? And number two, then again, wider levels, not just Ireland. You gave the example of UK, Germany, and the the number of plants in Germany compared to UK. What's the resistance to this? What's the resistance from governments and from the farmer community? Because it just seems to me, as I said, I use the phrase no-brainer. It seems to be a no-brainer.
2: Well, the, the farming community is traditionally a very small sea conservative community, and it travels at a relatively slow pace in terms of adoption of new technologies. What you're seeing, ironically, is some really much more rapid adoption in the US, partly because if you look at the livestock industry in the US, it's on a massive scale compared with Europe. If you are in the dairy industry in Wisconsin, then it makes an awful lot of sense. You've got a lot of cattle in sheds, and you've got a lot of manure and a lot of slurry, it makes sense to add on an AD plant pretty rapidly as a way of decarbonizing, but also as a way of actually providing you with a lot of your energy need. That's part of it. I think there's also been a reluctance on the part of policymakers to deal with what they perceive to be little industries. I remember going into battle as as an energy secretary on behalf of all sorts of quite small scale solutions, which nevertheless add up to a lot. So, for example, Run of the River Hydro, which used to be in Europe really quite a significant energy source before we all had national grids. And actually, we could get a lot of those sites back at relatively low cost, and it would make in aggregate really quite a substantial difference anaerobic direct digestion, biogas, is similar. Lots of relatively small-scale plants compared with what often ministers like is the big solution. We're going to build Hinkley Point. We're going to build Olkiluoto as a nuclear plant. But what they fail to take account of is that you can build a biodigester and you can build hundreds, thousands of biodigesters on time and on budget Given the planning and everything else, maybe two to three years. Whereas Olkiluoto is running 10 years late, Flamanville, I think 13, massively over budget. So this is a small scale individual solution, but it adds up to a big solution and it's a much more reliable solution than some of the ones that policymakers have traditionally liked.
1: Well, Chris, we share your enthusiasm. Modular round the clock, which is really important, technology which is stabilized, security of supply. I mean, how more beautiful can it not be? Right now in Europe, it's what like 1% of the gas comes from biogas and 40% from Russia. Question for Europe, but, but also for a lot of developing nations because there's a lot of biomass in Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, Africa, How do we scale to start appearing on the charts of IEA and have a dedicated line and not just be part of others?
2: What is interesting at the moment is that there is quite a substantial range of projections going forward. I mean, I used to, many years ago, be in the economic forecasting business, so I know how difficult it is doing a forecast one year ahead, let alone for 2030 or 2050. But if you look at the 2030-2050 forecasts, there is a completely united view of all of the forecasts that biogas and biomethane are going to be expanding very rapidly indeed. For the latest BP energy outlook, for example, which I think underpinned the thinking behind their purchase of archaea, they were expecting biomethane, so a subset of the biogas total, to grow from around 0.2% exajoules in 2019 to about five exajoules by 2050. The IEA is projecting that you're going to have overall demand for energy growing by about 0.7% a year. Biomethane grows 13% a year to 2030, 11% a year over the whole period to 2050. And this is global. You're absolutely right, Law. that I think there are enormous opportunities, particularly in Asia. There are enormous opportunities in Europe. And oddly, given how low the natural gas price is in the U.S. compared with other parts of the world, you're actually seeing a pretty rapid expansion of biogas and biomethane in the U.S. as well. The only issue is how quickly the sector is going to grow. And that will require support from governments on things like mandatory collection of food waste and so on. Or is it going to be another important, but not absolutely game-changing sector? And that's really the, the issue. My own guess is for all the reasons that you give, it's homegrown, it's buying from nice European farmers rather than from Vladimir Putin. The sector is going to grow very rapidly.
1: Well, Chris, it was a real pleasure and open your books about the future of biogas, biomethane, and I'm sure we could talk for hours about it, but I think for our listeners, it was quite important to have this first good overview of the sector and all the promises around it. Gerard? No, thank you very much, Chris, for coming on. Great help, really.
2: Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Gerard, did you enjoy the conversation? I did, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we did it, Laurent, because... Before, we just regarded it as a bit of a niche market technology, and it's there to sort of pay off the farmers and keep them quiet. But actually, what you realize is it's of incredible strategic importance, because as you says, it means energy is in our own hands.
1: I can understand that during the previous decade, when gas was at $5, $10 per MBTU, you would consider a cost of $15 per MBTU as uh, very expensive. But now considering the price of gas everywhere, the economic sense is blatant.
0: And I would also argue that if you look and just take the Asian price for gas the last years, it's always been around 15.
1: So biogas will make economic sense, going forward, full stock. Yeah, without subsidy. So that's really important. Yeah. Now, I understand also what uh, Chris said about the implication of the government and regulators, but that's much more in relation to the supply chain, making sure that those installation, especially the one who has a certain size, obtain the feedstock, which is food waste that they require.
0: The other reflection I have is agricultural practices. If you go to a lot of continental Europe. It's very easy, for example, say if you've got a thousand cattle or in the United States, a thousand cattle, and they're basically sitting in a pen all day, very easy to collect all that manure and use it, a biodigester. If you're doing agricultural practice like you do in Ireland, where they're on fields every day, 24-7, That's a little bit more difficult to collect that and actually put it in a biodigester. And I, I say that because there are challenges that will require changes in agricultural practice. That's what I would say for a start, but also in other areas as well, because there's so much waste. I think it's very interesting that Finland, for example, is doing also biogas coming from wood residual waste. There's so much waste everywhere. We need to use it in a different way than we do at present. That's what I would say. Yeah,
1: Totally. Well, Gerard, I think it was an interesting episode. We can't do every two weeks something super flashy. We we, we like to also dig deep in certain segments of our industry. And I had this biogas, biomethane on, on my radar for quite some time. And I'm so happy that now we can conclude the, we reached the inflection point. I agree with you that.
0: I do want to say one thing. You did laugh about the fact that I mentioned tidal as one of those possible <laughs>
1: technologies
0: in the future. We'll have to get someone on to talk about tidal oh, no, next yeah, year
1: yeah, yeah, so I to <laughs> <No>. persuade you. <laughs> be sick that day. <laughs> Great, thank to Chris for coming on to the show, and we thank our friends from Aquila Capital. We've re-signed as partner for 2023, so we're very happy. Thank you, Aquila. We love you a lot. We love you guys. And I talk to you in two weeks' time. Look forward to it, my friend.
2: Thank you for listening to Redefining Energy. Don't forget to rate the show and subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or the platform of your choice.